We worship, we worship the God who was, we worship the God who is, we worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors, he parted the raging sea. My God, he holds the victory. Sing that again, we worship. We worship the God who was, we worship the God who is, we worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors, he parted the raging sea. My God, he holds the victory. There's joy. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. We sing. We sing to the God who always makes a way Cause he hung up on that cross And he rose up from that grave My God still rolling stones away There's joy in the house of the Lord There's joy in the house of the Lord today We won't be quiet Shout out your praise There's joy in the house of the Lord God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. Shout out your praise. We were the beggars. prisoners now we're running free we are forgiven accepted redeemed by his grace let the house of the lord sing praise we were the beggars we were the beggars now we're royalty we were the prisoners now we're running free we are forgiven accepted by His grace, let the house of the Lord sing praise. There's joy, there's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is sure. the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is sure. 
the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out your praise. There's joy in the house of the Lord. Our God is surely in this place. We won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. God, we thank you for bringing us to this place today to worship you together. God, I thank you for the joy that you give, the forgiveness that you give. Thank you for allowing us into your presence today. So God, we just lay everything at your feet. We ask that you would purify our hearts. God, we confess our sin. We lay it at your feet. God, we thank you for your death that paid the price for our sin. God, and I thank you for your resurrection and your forgiveness. Thank you for the life that you give us. God, I'm on my knees again. God, I'm begging, please, again. I need you. Oh, I need you. Walking down this desert road Water for my thirsty soul I need you Oh, I need you God, I'm on my knees Sing that God, I'm on my knees again God, I'm begging please again I need you Oh, I need you Walking down this desert road Water for my thirsty soul, I need you, oh, I need you, your forgiveness is like sweet, sweet honey on my lips, like the sound of the symphony to my ear, like I want to know 
every day It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change I don't want to abuse your grace God, I need it every day It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change God, I don't want to abuse your grace God, I need it every day for us that is so beyond our realization, it's beyond our comprehension. God, even when we do the math and we think about all the things that we've done, God, personally, corporately, of what we deserve. But still you welcome us with your grace. So God, would you open our hearts today as we talk through that, as we think through that. God, as we hear from your word, as we hear your truth, would you give us a better understanding 
of your grace for us, a better realization. God, we never want to take it for granted. We never want to abuse it. So God, help us to realize it. The grace that you've shown us, God, as we attempt to show that grace to others. God, give us your heart of compassion. Teach us about your grace today, God. We just give this morning to you and thank you for it. Thank you for bringing us here. Open our hearts. Let your will be done in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. It always kind of cracks me up when I look around at about uh, 9.55 and there's like six people in here. Um, but yeah, great to see you all this morning. Glad you all could make it. I have got a lot of announcements. There's a lot of stuff going on this time of year, so I'm going to go through them kind of rapid fire and just know that all the information or if there's something that piques your interest that maybe involves you or involves your kids or something like that, go look at the website. All the information's out on the website. It's also in the weekly email, so if you're not getting the weekly email, let me know. And it is also in the Bible app, our kind of virtual bulletin in the Bible app. And if you're not sure how to get to that, you can let me know as well. So real quick, let's go through this. This afternoon, we've got a Treat Street Carnival down at First Street Baptist Church. This is a kid's fall festival kind of calendar, uh, uh, calendar, carnival, from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock this afternoon. Looks like the weather's going to be beautiful. Costumes are encouraged. So uh, that's, again, at First Baptist uh, at 1 o'clock today. We've got a men's fellowship evening at John Semick's house on Tuesday evening at 6 o'clock. It's going to be food, um, fellowship, and foosball. So it should be a great evening. So please come out if you need that address. Look for John, or you can get it from me, or you can get it from Elliot as well. Uh, so women's Bible study next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. They meet every other Saturday, so they'll be on again next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. We've got a potluck next week. I do want to talk about this a little bit. Next Sunday afternoon, next Sunday is Communion Sunday, and we have been doing barbecues for the most part, really since COVID, we've been trying to do barbecues, but we're actually gonna get back into our potlucks, especially since we're not so sure about the weather going into the wintertime. So next Sunday, there will be a potluck right after church in the coffee shop. If your last name begins with A to J, bring a main dish. And if your last name begins with K to Z, bring a side or a salad, and then we'll take care of desserts and beverages and that kind of stuff. So again, potluck next week. Show up with some food and uh, enjoy that time. New members class on November 13th. So that's a couple weeks out on a Sunday afternoon right after the service. And uh, lastly, I want to mention the Operation Christmas Child is starting up. The boxes are out in the lobby. So you can take one of those boxes, fill it up for a child, for children around the world. And then we're also going to be looking for help from November 14th through the 21st here at the church to help collect all the boxes, not just from our churches, but from all the churches in the area. We're kind of the central collection spot for that. So there's information on the website and the email about how to sign up for those two-hour slots to help out with that. And then I want to bring up Val Semek for the leadership appreciation piece before we wrap up here. 
Okay, so you've all seen me three weeks now, and this is the last time. So if you procrastinated and thought, I have so much time to do this gift and write these cards, you ran out of it. So let's do it today. Um, I've got lots of cards. Um, I'll, I'll bring up my voice to appeal to you. Say, please write something. No? Okay. But anyways, we just want to say thank you to the leaders in our church. Um, you can do that with cards. You can give money. You can take them out to meals. You can email them and say thank you. And if nine families seems a little overwhelming, pick three or four that you know. Just you do what feels right. Um, and I just don't want it to overwhelm you to not do anything. So just try to do something, all right? Or say hi to a family you've never met, etc. Okay, this is my last time. So if you want to come find me, if you need advice or ideas, let me know. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Val, for doing that. I appreciate it. Um, we're going to go ahead and dismiss kids now. So kids, you guys can get up, go out to the lobby, go to your Sunday school rooms. If you're new here and you'd like your kids to go to Sunday school, just take them out in the lobby. We'll get you set up in the right place. The rest of you, go ahead and stand up, greet one another, find someone you don't know, and say hello. And we'll get started again here in just a minute.
Hey, Jeff. Can you turn this down? <clears throat> All right, let's uh, work on pulling it back together here. <clears throat> might be late, but you're very compliant, so that's great. Well done. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. I, I have to admit, I got up early this morning and kind of went through my notes and stuff, and, and I decided to turn on the Bronco game for a little while because they have that 7.30 game because they're playing in London. That lasted about 10 minutes <laughs> because I started getting very judgmental. And I'm like, you know, I can't watch this and go into my message with the right state of mind. So I turned it off quickly. I don't know what happened. Don't even tell me, but I'm guessing it's probably not good. <clears throat> um, let me go ahead and uh, pray for us as we go into our time in the Sermon on the Mount. Father God, we do just uh, come before you, um, confessing in our hearts. There are times, Lord, when we get judgmental, when kind of our self-righteousness gets the best of us. And we just want to talk about that today and go through this passage in the Sermon on the Mount that can be challenging and can be misconstrued and just want to treat it well, Lord, and I want to do it in a way that just encourages all of us and honors you and pleases you. So, Lord, please guide our time together this morning. Uh, be with us, teach our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now one of the things that you hear us talk a lot about in this church is the principle of context. Okay, Understanding the context of a passage is absolutely crucial to understanding the original meaning of the passage. And we get ourselves into a lot of trouble when we take things out of context. And there are two primary types of context that we're going to talk about this morning. And these are the two main ones you need to focus on when you're reading and studying the Bible. One of them is literary context and the other one is historical or cultural context. So literary context is really simple. It's basically what surrounds what looking at in its original form. Okay, so what comes right before and what comes right after. So as we're studying on the Sermon on the Mount, you'll often hear us refer back to the passage that came right before or something that's coming up later. That's literary context. So we look at stuff that comes right before and right after. But then we need to go out a little bit further than that, too. We need to look at how our passage fits into the overall context of that particular story or book or whatever. So in this case, how it fits into the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. And then you take it out a little bit further and you look at how that passage fits in to the book of Matthew and how Matthew taught and kind of what his message was and who his audience was and all that. Then you look at it in comparison to the rest of the Gospels and the New Testament and then the whole Bible. So the context is basically this idea of taking a passage and going out in concentric circles around that passage to help us understand what a passage is saying, okay? And what, liter what, what it does for us is it helps us to get to a more accurate understanding, especially when it's a difficult passage to interpret. So I always tell someone when they're, when they're struggling with a passage, well, did you read it right before it and right after it? Did you kind of read it in context? Because a lot of times you'll get an answer to your question by doing that. So, for example, 
1 Corinthians 6, 19, you've probably all heard it. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now, this passage is often used to condemn behaviors like drinking or smoking or even eating excessively. Okay? But the literary context eliminates those options. What comes right before and what comes right after this text tells us that Paul, in this particular instance, is talking about sexual immorality. That is the gist of his message here. It's not about smoking. It's not about drinking. It's not about overeating. Now, does that mean we shouldn't take care of our bodies? No, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. It's just that this passage should not be used for that message. Okay. Now, historical and cultural context is also really important. We need to think about the original audience the original author and their situation and their circumstances. You know, what was life like? What daily problems were they facing? What was going on in the world around them? And how would they have understood whatever is being said in that passage? How would the original audience have heard Matthew or have heard Jesus, in this case, when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, or have heard Paul when he's writing to them, when, you know, and they're in Rome, and they're reading this letter from him. How would they have understood it? That is absolutely crucial. And then we need to take those historical and cultural elements into consideration to understand the meaning of the text. So, another very familiar example here, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. So this is a very familiar verse, and it's often taken out of context, and it's treated like a general promise to all believers. But when you look at the historical context of this verse, we see that it was a promise to the nation of Israel in the midst of 70 years of exile. So this is the prophet Jeremiah speaking, the Lord speaking through him and giving them this promise. I know, Israel, I have plans for you. You're going to get out of this. Okay. But we tend to take passages like this, put them on bumper stickers, put them on plaques, things like that, and we don't understand them in their context. But this promise was intended for a specific people in a specific set of circumstances at a specific time. Now again, does this mean we can't take hope from this passage? No, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. There are principles in this and in this whole story that we can apply to our lives. But we need to be careful that we don't assume verses like this were intended as direct promises to us today. So what context does is it kind of limits the interpretive options. You look at a passage and you say, well, it could kind of could be saying this or it kind of could be saying this or it could be saying this. Well, what context does is it kind of gives you a fence and it, it helps you eliminate certain options by looking at both the literary context and the historical context. And you see what happens is if we take a passage out of context, we can easily misinterpret it or misuse it or even abuse it. We can use passages out of context in an abusive way. Now, the verse that we're dealing with today is oftentimes taken out of context. And so it is misinterpreted and it is misused, especially by those that are opposed to Christianity or to the faith. And that verse is, do not judge or you too will be judged. 
But let's read the passage in its context, and then I'll talk about what's going on around it after that. But here's what it says. It says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Okay, so now imagine a scene in which you're having a conversation. Your holidays are coming up. These kind of conversations happen all the time. You're having a conversation with a family member who maybe they don't know the Lord. So let's just say it's your brother-in-law doesn't know the Lord. And a topic comes up that's one of those hot-button topics. A political topic, a cultural topic, any of those. And so you share some of your thoughts and your opinions coming from a Christian worldview. And your brother-in-law vehemently disagrees with you. What is one of the retorts you're likely to hear in that situation? Don't judge. Doesn't your Bible say you're not to judge? How can you be so judgmental? You see, our culture, our modern culture, is all about relativism. That is the word of the day. And, and, and modern culture hates absolutes, especially absolutes about moral beliefs and behavior. And, and as soon as you make any sort of evaluative comment about a particular belief or a particular behavior, people will oftentimes take this passage, do not judge, and they will use it to try to put you back on your heels. They'll hit you over the head with it and say, you're being judgmental. You Christians are all the same. Stop judging. And they use this passage to suggest that Christians should never think critically or evaluate the behavior of others in any way. Okay, so it's kind of a straw man argument they use. But they are misinterpreting and misusing the passage. And it's because they're taking the passage out of context. And they are ignoring other relevant passages in the Bible. Because that's one of the things you need to look at. Scripture oftentimes will interpret Scripture. And you can't always just look at one passage and figure out meaning. You've got to look at a lot of different things and compare them. So, for example, what Jesus says just a bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses later here, so in context, he says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. This sounds like a call to evaluate, right? He's saying that we need to watch out, be, pay attention, watch out for these false prophets, and that we need to evaluate the fruit of their ministry to see if what they're saying is really true. And so it suggests that there are times when we do need to think critically, and we do need to evaluate the behavior of others. And then a few chapters later, still in the book of Matthew, but in Matthew 18, it says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So this is in a section about church discipline. Matthew 18 talks a lot about church discipline. Okay. Another example, frankly, of something that's taken out of context, because in Matthew 18, right at the end of this section on church discipline, it says, for wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with them. What do we immediately go to when we think of that passage? prayer, right? 
but it's not. There's nothing in the context about prayer. It's all about church discipline. And it's this idea of when someone has wronged you, you go to them individually, and then you go and you gather other people to go with them, and then you get the whole church involved if you have to. So we need to be able to see that there are times when we are to think critically and we are to evaluate. And this is just two examples of places where we're actually called to evaluate. So it's interesting, it kind of almost appears like there's this contradiction of do not judge, but yet go ahead and judge, you know, in these situations. And anytime you see that in the Bible, you've just got to figure out how to reconcile those things. And it usually comes from just reading a little bit deeper here. Because Jesus is not saying here, when he says do not judge, that we should never think critically or evaluate others' behaviors, because that is not consistent with the text around it. So why is this passage so often misconstrued, and what does it really say about judging? Well, to answer those questions, we need to look at context. Okay. As we think about this passage, we have to remember that one of the main things Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount was calling out the behavior of the Pharisees as a negative example. See, the Pharisees' primary concern was not to move people from sinfulness to holiness, but they would often condemn people's actions and beliefs because they were inconsistent with their traditions. And Jesus was declaring that their judgmental, hypocritical self-righteousness was in direct opposition to the kind of behavior that he expected in the kingdom of God. Now, we've talked a lot about the Pharisees in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, because they're kind of a primary foil or antagonist for Jesus' sermon here. And over, excuse me, over several centuries leading up to the time of Christ, the, the Pharisees had developed a set of spiritual traditions. And we've talked about these traditions. These traditions were loosely based on the law, but then they had been tailored to kind of fit the Pharisees' whims and to fit the Pharisees' thinking, and to fit the Pharisees' ability to live up to them. So they had manipulated the law and come up with their own traditions. In other words, they had developed their own standards for religion and morality. And by the time of Jesus, those standards of religion and morality had taken root in Judaism, and many of those traditions had become more authoritative than Scripture itself in the minds of many of the Jews. We see this clearly in Matthew chapter 15. It said, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Okay, so the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Not the law. Not the law of God. Not the command of God. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you, Pharisees, Break the command of God for your traditions. So you can see how Jesus has set this up. He is in direct contradiction to them. And then shortly later in verse 6, he says, Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. They had nullified the word of God because of their traditions. And then he says, You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. See, the Pharisees had developed their own standard, and that standard had lost its connection with God's law and the heart of God. It had become merely 
human rules. Now, what happens when a group develops its own standard of behavior? That group begins to judge everyone else by that standard. And the Pharisees had certainly done that. They had become extremely judgmental. And they looked down on anyone who did not adhere to their system. And the Sermon on the Mount, in, G- in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus proclaims his perfect standard in contrast to the standard of the Pharisees. So, if this passage doesn't teach that we should never think critically or evaluate the behavior of others, then what does it teach? Okay, well, let's unpack that, starting with verses 1 and 2. Right place here. The first thing that it teaches is don't be judgmental. Okay? It says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and you, the, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, one of the primary things that I want you to see here is that there is a difference between making a judgment and being judgmental. That is a key thing, a difference between making a judgment and being judgmental. To make a judgment is simply to form an opinion or to come to a conclusion about something. Okay, we do this every day. We make judgments about how to spend our time. We make judgments about who to spend our time with. We make judgments about people and issues when we vote. We're in the middle of voting season. It's all over the TVs. You're getting it in your mailbox constantly. They're asking you to make judgments. Judgment calls, okay? You're forming an opinion. You even made a judgment about this church by choosing to be here today. Okay, so we make judgments all the time, but being judgmental is different. Being judgmental is being excessively critical. And if you think of a judgmental person, they're characterized by this tendency to judge harshly and and to look down on people. And, And we all know people like this. They're constantly criticizing. They put a negative spin on everyone's motives, and they're obsessed with finding fault in others. That's judgmental. So you see the difference there. To make a judgment is to form an opinion or come to a conclusion. To be judgmental is to be excessively critical and harsh. Now, interestingly, looking at these words, a person with good judgment is usually not thought of as judgmental. You can kind of see the contrast there. So we can either be Christians with good judgment, or we can be Christians that are judgmental. It all comes down to our posture and our motives, which is another kind of theme that's kind of going through the the Sermon on the Mount here, is how do we approach things? What is our posture towards these issues? What is our posture towards others? What is our heart motive? Now, in all fairness to the text, Jesus does say, do not judge. But I would suggest, again, based on the context, looking at everything that's going on in the sermon and everything that's going on around it, that he's not talking about making judgments, but rather he's talking about being judgmental. So the problem here is not assessing right or wrong or using our critical abilities to distinguish truth from error or even to call out sin. Because if we are called to be salt and light, we should hate sin as much as God does. And we should be willing to expose sin and act against sin on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So the problem is not making judgments. It's in being judgmental. And instead of being judgmental, we are to extend grace to others. Okay, so that is the application for this point. 
instead of being judgmental, be gracious toward one another. Gus has taught this often. If we truly understand grace, if we truly grasp grace, we can never look down on someone in their sin. We can only look up at God who's forgiven us of ours. And then we come alongside that brother or sister in their sin. So we always need to keep in mind our own status as fallen human beings and the sins that God has forgiven us of. It's like the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, where a servant is forgiven a great debt by his master, only to turn around and demand immediate repayment from a fellow servant who owed him a much smaller debt by comparison. That is the opposite of grace. Someone who is forgiven, turning around and not forgiving, that's not who we're supposed to be. See, only from the humble position as a fellow sinner can we help each other recognize and deal with our sin. Which leads to the second point. Don't be hypocrite. It says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus uses a little bit of exaggeration here, almost in a comic way. But his point is simple. It is hypocritical to judge another person's sin while being oblivious to the own sin in your own life. And this is another line clearly directed at the Pharisees. Jesus was calling them out as hypocrites and telling the disciples not to follow their example. Because the Pharisees looked down on everyone who wasn't like them, and they were arrogant. <clears throat> Consider this parable that Jesus told in Luke 18. It says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I, I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his, beat his breath and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, so this parable is obviously a commentary on the, the Pharisees' prideful ways. And if you look at Luke's kind of introduction to this, it's kind of an editorial introduction. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He kind of sets the tone right there. That's a pretty pointed statement. So again, the Pharisees were very confident in their traditions, and they considered themselves to be the most righteous of all the Jews. But they were so consumed with their self-righteousness that they could not see their own sin. They could not see their own hypocrisy. There was no humility. There was no self-awareness. Unfortunately, there was only a desire to put others down and elevate themselves. And we see this in Christians a lot. We do see this in our culture, which is really a shame that there are people in the church of Christ that are like that. And the point is, don't be like that. Instead, be self-aware and be humble. So instead of being hypocritical, be self-aware. 
and be humble. Concentrate on removing the sin from your own life. And then, and only then, can you help others remove the sin from their lives. You see, as Christians, we owe it to each other. We owe it to our brothers and sisters in Christ to help them see the sin in their lives and correct it. But you have to approach that with humility, with grace, with compassion, and with self-awareness. Again, notice the progression. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And again, as we consider the literary context of this passage, we see this kind of play out just a few verses later. Jesus says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. So the idea of the golden rule here in the Sermon on the Mount, take care of others in their sin, help them in their sin, but help yourself first, but also accept it when they're going to come and help you. Don't get defensive. See, we're to help others with the sin in their lives, just like we would want them to help this, with the sin in our lives. Now, these first two points deal primarily, I believe, with relationships within the church, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't address sin in the culture around us, but we definitely need to approach it differently. Okay? When a non-believer is sinning, they are often doing so in ignorance. They're not following Christ, and they're not following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so they may not know any better. I didn't become a Christian until my early 20s. And I look back at my high school and college years, and that was me. I didn't know any better. I was ignorant. And I was in denial. I mean, I guess I had learned things growing up as a Catholic. But I was in denial, and I was ignorant. Okay? And I didn't have the Holy Spirit guiding me. The best thing we can do in that situation is be salt and light and be a model of godly behavior, to present a positive contrast to a negative behavior, and then to be available when that person is eventually convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit and realizes their brokenness. But the last passage in this, in our, in our last verse in our passage for today, does address the interaction with the world more directly. And the last point for this morning is to don't be naive. Verse 6 says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, this is one of the most perplexing verses in the sermon and really in the whole New Testament. There's a lot of interpretive challenges on this. Now, based on the context, again, what I would suggest that Jesus is saying here is that we're not to be judgmental, we're not to be hypocritical, but at the same time, this kind of balances the rest of the passage, at the same time, we're not to naively tolerate a hostile and aggressive attitude toward the gospel. Now, the references to dogs and pigs here is telling. In biblical times, dogs were not kept as household pets. They might have been kept in some cases to help herd sheep, but for the most part, they were wild animals and scavengers, and they were dangerous. Pigs were not domesticated either. In fact, the, to the Jews, pigs were considered the most unclean animal. Okay, so they didn't keep them. So, like dogs, they were typically wild animals and scavengers, and they were dangerous. And if you came between a pig and its food, they could do some serious damage with their hooves and their tusks. So the idea of giving a dog something sacred or holy, maybe a piece of meat from a sacrifice made at the temple, 
Or the idea of throwing your pearls to pigs is foolish, and a Jew would never do that. Now, I believe that pigs and dogs in this passage represent those who reject the gospel and are hostile to its message and belligerent to those that are carrying the message. Now, this does not mean that we should not share the gospel with unbelievers. That would be contrary to the great command and everything else we read in the Bible. But rather, I think it means that when we are sharing the gospel and the person rejects the message, even ridicules the message, gets abusive, gets aggressive, there comes a time to stop sharing, to not give a dog what is sacred, to not throw our pearls to pigs. Now, I get it, this is harsh language, but it's consistent with what Jesus instructed later in Matthew chapter 10 when he sent out the 12 disciples. He said, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. And it's consistent with what Paul did in Macedonia when the Jews rejected his message and became abusive. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul turned his back on his own people. It broke his heart. But he turned his back on his own people because they were rejecting the message of grace. They were rejecting him. They were being abusive towards the gospel. And so he turned away and went to the Gentiles. So the message here is that when we're sharing the gospel with unbelievers, we should be discerning and not naive. And if the person we're sharing with becomes hostile or aggressive, we shouldn't waste any more time or any more breath. But that doesn't mean you just forget about them. We should pray and trust that the Holy Spirit will eventually convict their hearts and help them recognize their sin. So just to kind of recap the three points for this morning, be gracious, not judgmental. Be humble and self-aware, not hypocritical. And be discerning, not naive. And one of the key things that I really want you to take away from this is to work on the sin in your own life before addressing the sin in someone else's life. But do so with the right motives. Like we've been saying all along in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is really addressing in this sermon the motive of our hearts. And he says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. I tell you, do not even be angry with your brother. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, do not even lust. So it's the idea of what is in our heart. What is the motive that is driving us to recognize and acknowledge and call out and help the, our brothers and sisters with their sin? Are we being loving or are we being self-righteous like the Pharisees? Are we truly trying to help or are we elevating ourselves? And are we really concerned about the other person's eternal well-being or are we concerned with looking good and being right. See, our motives really matter. And if our life is like a whitewashed tomb, which is what Jesus called the Pharisees later, he says, you're, you're like a whitewashed tomb, which looks beautiful on the outside, but on the inside is full of everything unclean. If our lives are like that, then we should definitely not be calling out the sins in others' lives. But if we acknowledge our sin and understand how God has forgiven us, if we get the concept of grace, then we can take that message of grace to others. Especially when we realize that they might only have a speck of sawdust in their eyes when God has removed a, a plank from our own. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father God, we do just acknowledge that there are times when we get a little bit full of ourselves and we start looking out and calling out the sins of those around us and not recognizing the sins in our own lives. Or we call out the sins of those around us not recognizing how much we've been forgiven of. It's like the parable of that servant who was forgiven so much and then goes out and finds a fellow servant and just demands satisfaction immediately. And That's not how you want us to be. Lord, so I pray that we would take these words, take the words of the sermon, that we would put them into practice, that we would not be foolish, but that we would be wise and put these into practice and really reflect on, on our own lives before we go out worrying about everyone else's. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I usually uh, get up before my alarm goes off. I guess that happens when you get older, but uh, um, I usually reach over and grab my phone <clears throat> and, uh, and read the verse of the day. And today uh, was one of my favorite verses. And, uh, I, I quote it a lot uh, in the context of worship, but uh, maybe you guys have already read the verse of the day. But it is, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And uh, just for the fun of it, I, I decided to, and, and sometimes you know you have the option to read full chapter there. And so well, I haven't done that in a while, so I'm going to push that button and, and read, read the immediate context there. And I was, uh, I was in that elders meeting this week, so I didn't get to hear a lot of the prep work that Sean put into this, so I, had, I didn't know that he was going to talk so much about context, but um, that was really hitting me this morning for some reason, just that, uh, um, that importance of, of putting scripture in context, so I decided to read through this, and not that I have, that we take this verse out of context, it, but the immediate context was really interesting. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to scoop back to verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and clearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is Colossians 3, uh, starting with verse 12. 13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that immediate context is really how we treat each other. And I love, the, uh, I love, love this verse, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish. One, uh, one another with wisdom. That word admonish, I, I looked it up just because I always read over things like that and just take it for granted and don't dig into it like I should, but I looked it up, and some of you are 
most of you are smarter than me, so you probably already know this, but it says to caution, advise, or counsel against something. And then the second definition, to reprove or scold, especially in a mild and good-willed manner. To urge to a duty. So that word admonish sounds so much better than judge and, and uh, things like that, but uh, we're called to do that, you know, to not, to be compassionate is to not hold back, you know, the heart of God from each other. And as we encourage each other and admonish each other. Um, so that's what we're going to do as we continue in worship. Um, we're going to start with this song, Come Ye Sinners. And, and, and uh, um, you know, we don't, we don't know our baggage. We don't, we don't have to wear it you know, outside of us, but as we sing this to each other, let's encourage each other to really go to Jesus and uh, um, come together.
Slow to anger and rich in 
And the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that He has made. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far He has removed our transgressions from. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far He has removed the transgressions. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and rich in transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed the transgressions from us. Praise the the Lord together. So praise the Lord. Praise the
is gracious. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. God, we praise you and we thank you. Thank you for the grace that you've shown us, the compassion that you've shown us, the mercy. God, would you help us show that grace to others? Continue to teach us how to love people those we agree with, those we don't agree with. God, teach us how to love people. And to do it all for the glory of you. Giving thanks to you. God, we're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for what you've done for us, what you've done in us, how you've changed us, how you've healed us. God, help us to wear that, to wear that robe of grace. stand and uh, close with this song. So good morning. Thanks for being here with us. And let's just celebrate uh, just, just this time together. I, I just love being in this place and uh, journeying with you guys and um, it's a joy to be in this place. So let's let's sing House of the Lord. the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, He holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. 